You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abrocha, I'm Avram Kivalevich, and I'm very excited about a brand new podcast, and this is actually our first episode. It's called Standing in Two Worlds, and I have harangued my good friend, uh, Professor Samuel Juni, Sir Emeritus in Applied Psychology of NYU, uh, who is living in Eretz Yisrael now in Yerushalayim, uh, to join us every week. And I call it Standing in Two Worlds, not only because Dr. Juni spent many years, of course, as a renowned uh, scientist and psychologist and writer in America and is now been Ole at Eretz Yisrael and can give us a perspective of the two worlds of Eretz Yisrael and, of course, America, the diaspora. <laughs> and I'm not sure if what we call Eretz Yisrael the Geula or the uh, almost Geula, but also because Dr. Juni is not only uh, an Orthodox Jewish scientist, he is also a trailblazer in, uh, in psychology. He is, I'm going to read from his official NYU page. He is scholarship on aberrant behavior across the cultural, ethnic, and religious spectrum is founded on psychometric methodology and based on a psychodynamic psychopathology perspective. If you understand that, then you are in better shape than I am. But I know that Dr. Juni is definitely someone who has been published often, is cited often, and in many ways I think can respond to our needs to our listeners' desires of understanding what the hell is going on sometimes in our world. Because he has a scientist's understanding, but he also has the heart and soul of someone who understands Yiddishkeit through and through. Dr. Juni, again, I'm going to tell everybody right now, I might slip and refer to you as Shmilu, which of course, uh, because we know each other so long, it is a, a tremendous honor to have you here. I hope this program is going to go as great as I think it might. So thanks for being with us here in Eretz Yisrael. A pleasure. So, Dr. Juni, uh, tell us, uh, especially most of our listeners, as we know from our analytics, are from America. We do have some Israeli listeners. Uh, why don't you give us a sense here of, 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 of what you see happening? Let's talk about COVID because we have to start there. What, what do you see uh, from your perspective as a, as, a, as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, a psychologist, I'm sorry, uh, of what's happening in the Israeli culture vis-a-vis what you're hearing happening uh, in the United States in terms of the, the, response, to, uh, the response to COVID-19 and What's happening in the dynamic of that society? Okay, so before dynamics, let's just talk about um, a, a breakdown here of behaviors. We basically have three major groups, at least in the Jerusalem area, and that is the Israelis, the French, and the Anglos. And when you look at just people who are concerned, people who believe there is a problem out there, or people are interested in complying with directives, you have a three-way split. You have the French people who totally have no belief or interest or even any um, pretense of going along with the rules, except when there's a cop around. So they will do everything and anything. It's totally ignored. You have the Anglos who are meticulous in observing all the 
regulations. And you have the Israelis who um, nominally say, yes, there's a problem, but when nobody's really supervising them, they become pretty lax. And that's been the, uh, even when you look at the incidence of people getting sick here, there's a nice breakdown like that. You have most of them having uh, happening with the French. Um, the uh, Americans and the Anglos in general don't have that much of a difficulty, and the Israelis are somewhere in the middle. Who are, I'm not including the Hasidim here. The Hasidim and the Haredim have their own particular culture, and within the Hasidim there are also breakdowns. And I can, if you know the particular sects, I can tell you which ones totally defy everything, which ones tend to be rather meticulous, so they don't fall into any category. That's the demographic. You know, I, I am sensing, just because I know you so well, that despite the fact that this is a, a, a terrible health emergency, I think you're seeing this as a possible uh, paper, a possible psychological paper uh-huh. about how each group has reacted and maybe trying to figure out what was the, what was, what, what's the dynamic behind it and what is really right. I, I, am I correct that that's where you're going yeah. here? I'm a, I'm a prisoner of my own orientation, and I sometimes can't um, um, extricate myself from it and actually get concerned about details. Yeah, I always look at things with an interest of understanding. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm guilty. <laughs> but, but Okay, so I, I am just an armchair um sophist you know I, I don't even know if i even uh, qualify that way but i do read a lot and i do hear a lot and and i think that even though we all eretz Yisrael has this uh illusion that we're all together we're all jews we all made aliyah uh there is definitely and you you're where your writing has has underscored this there are still very strong differences and fissures between the various communities and i, I here, here's where i'm going from they're all Jews, but if you come from a country that's used to following orders, if you come to a country that's been, for example, conquered <laughs> often, and that you realize what it is to take orders from rulers who have been uh, telling you what to do, then it's probably easier for you to uh, accept the orders of the government or the orders of the of the police. Whereas if you come from a country that is you know, founded on freedom and doing whatever you want then it's very hard to buckle under, even if they're telling you it's your life uh, that we're concerned about. So it could be, again, France, I, you know, it was just Bastille Day yesterday. So France is all, they're, they're still celebrating Bastille Day. So they are about that type of, uh, uh, that, that freedom that the revolution brought upon. Uh, I, can, I can understand that. Um, and the, is, again, the Israelis, it's hard because you do have this great mix. But the Anglos, when you say Anglos, are you talking about Brits? Are you talking about Americans? Or you want to dump them together? Because uh, uh, when you're talking about that. I, I am dumping together basically the Brits, the South Africans, the Irish, Canadians, Americans, obviously. Yeah, I'm dumping them together. But I think you're touching on just being used to following orders. There's another issue which is correlated with that, which is an inborn, inborn a, a deeply ingrained cynicism and distrust of authorities, which means I don't believe there's COVID out there. I don't think it really is a problem. They're doing this for whatever reason. Let me, let me give you an example that's totally off, off mark, okay? So I have someone who's become a fairly good friend here who's a general handyman, okay? And he came to do some repairs, and he says, you'll save yourself some money if you pay me cash. And I said to him, 
I want to pay tax. I want you to give me a receipt and I want to pay taxes. And he says, Sam, what's wrong with you? And I say, excuse me, I want to, he says, why do you want to pay tax? So I said, because I feel this is our country, this is our people, and I want to help provide services. So he says, look, let me explain something to you. <laughs> if you pay this tax, not a penny of it will go towards the, um, the uh, projects that are going on. If you pay our Nona, that's real estate tax, that goes to the government. But this stuff, the person who collects a task will, will take a cut. Then he'll give it to somebody else and to somebody else. Nobody will get it. Okay? So this guy was sincere. He's a friend, but he was telling me that I'm really stupid, that I have this belief that the government really does what it's supposed to and the people who are working for the government are interested and they're conscientious. It's not going to happen. Okay? That's the perspective that definitely the French have it totally, and the Israelis have it as well, although they're sort of westernized into behaviors when, when, it, when it's showing. But that's the general attitude here. So the cynic, I think the cynicism, along with, of course, with being programmed, and maybe also the fact that Israelis have been in situations where they had to go against the understanding or rules just to survive. But there's also a real cynicism that's here. Many of the people do not believe. Just because you tell them something, they do not believe you. Just because you say something was done or was not done or will be done, it's not part of their way of thinking. Yeah, I, I, it seems to me that especially again we talk about Israelis, and of course it's an amorphous group of of, of, of Russians mm-hmm. and, and 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 North Africans and others that have come together. But I think over the last seventy years, what has bonded them has been being in a country that's under siege, being in a country mm-hmm. that uh, has dealt with not just the internal lies, but all their neighbors have been externally lying to them. So the idea of of a government, the idea of trust. Uh, it doesn't exist. You know, it's, it's sort of like that's an inbred cynicism which allows them to be tough enough to deal with all the shattered hopes of peace, the shattered hopes of reconciliation, uh, the governments that come and go. I think that's mm-hmm. sort of a sort of happens. Whereas in the United States, uh, well, before Trump, but before Trump, we had, a, you know, we, we, I grew up, you are a little bit younger, older than me, but I grew up believing in the sanctity of the presidency, uh, the belief in good citizenship. It's great to be a Boy Scout. So, you know, I think Israelis, it's just, it's just a, the nature of what their country has been, has has had that cynicism foster and they and unfortunately the government has proved it to be true more often than not so it's hard for them to switch now and say oh the government loves me and wants to take care of me i don't know if you uh, if you agree on that but well, well i wanted to say i think there's another point superseding the orientation that you're fostering here and I, i've written a lot about this this has been one of my major research projects here in israel which is that israelis generally feel that the rules don't apply to them because it's an emergency. And that was, they're living constantly in an emergency situation. So although it makes sense to say, excuse me, or please, or whatever, but when the grenades are flying, and when danger is there, you just push, you shove, you get out of the bunker really quickly, they live their daily life like that, constantly. And when you ask them, they say, yes, but. There's always a yes, but, meaning that these rules don't apply to anybody who's in danger. And it's basically, we are escaping an atom bomb every minute. That's the orientation. It's like living in a constant crisis, which, by the way, has a tremendous effect on the psychopathology here and gives me a lot of business. <laughs> I'm sure it does, but it's, a, oh, but it's an almost like an illusion, because, but, but the human psyche can't, 
can't really uh, bifurcate. In other words, because there have been periods when the bombs have been flying, so sure. even when it's even when it's normal, it's still bomb period, and therefore right. that sort of bleeds into their interpersonal behavior. And even the guy who comes to fix uh, and paint your house has that same sort of sure. same sort of attitude. I want to I want to go back to something that you said because I think our listeners will be very interested in this, um, and this has to do with you because uh, I don't see you as the typical Ole. But when you bunched the 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 Americans together with the Canadians and the Brits and the South Africans, I found that I said what because you know we're here you know when I'm where I'm speaking to you although I'm in Jersey but I'm hearing about what's happening in Texas what's happening in Florida what's happening in Georgia where we have this sense of uh, uh the, the the pioneer spirit the sense of I'm not you know uh, I'm in Montana nobody can tell me what to do so it's interesting that you actually put the Americans in Israel with the Brits is it where we're as we have this idea of Americans you know, are sort of bullheaded and, and want to do things their own way. Is it possible? And of course, that the ones who've made Aliyah are different than your standard American. In other words, if he's already committed himself uh, to this great ideal to leave America, to to live a life of privation in, in Israel, that he's not your typical American. He's more, he's more similar to a Brit or a South African. Is, is that possible? Yeah, I have two answers. First of all, we're dealing here with these various Anglos in contrast to a host group. So I think sometimes that the differences between these Anglos, even though it's clear, it is dwarfed by the difference between them in general and the others that are here. That's first of all. Um, Second of all, um, the Olim in general are considered by Israelis and by the culture here as being naive idealists, okay? So like I was working in Tel Aviv for many years before we decided to make Aliyah. And when I did, my colleagues there said, Nishtagata, like what is wrong with you? Is there some way you can give me your job? You take my professorship here and just let me go over there, even as a lecturer. In other words, they consider you nuts. Why would you come to this at all? And in that respect, yes, so that was your point. There is a commonality once you commit to coming here, it's that way. But I have to tell you, at international conferences, I picked it up, and those were not Olim at all. Those were real Russians and real Chinese and real whatever. And there is, I would say, the Anglos can be grouped together, maybe by some kind of underlying civic-mindedness, maybe by some underlying respect, like you said, the Constitution, the government, uh, old glory. They're, well, they have different, you know, they have different symbols in Canada. But the idea is, yes, there is some commonality there that I think when you try to explain the variance between people and across people, that the variance within the Anglos is much smaller than the variance between them and any other group we're talking about. So the, uh, I guess, you know, from the way you're talking, and I think we, we talk, before we started recording, I, I mentioned this to you, that uh, it's, so it is sort of strange that you didn't decide to make Aliyah. Now, hopefully this is going to be one of the themes that we're going to explore week by week. I don't expect you to be able to put it into a little syringe right now and explain it to me, but it, what what actually drove you? I mean, you're a scientist. You're a person who has written. Uh, it, it, you're not at the hotbed of, of of scientific research, although Israel is definitely very, uh, is definitely a very forward place. 
I was a, a visitor in your home very, very often. I know looking through the Zoom camera that you don't have the type of, uh, of I wouldn't call it luxury, but the type of uh, aspects that you had in America. You've given up a lot uh, to move into this yeah. apartment in Yerushalayim intellectually and, 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 and for your own uh, comfort. And here you are. I'm not going to tell everybody how old you are, but I'm 60, and you're 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 a lot older than not a lot older, but you're quite a bit more than I am. Although you're very vibrant and alive, and I and you're one of one of my favorite people to talk to. Why did you do this? I mean, can you tell our listeners why is Sam Juni Shmilo Juni? What what are you doing there? Okay, so basically, I I am suffering from the um, well, let's call a spade a spade. I'm suffering from the fascism of um, liberalism that has crept up on me. And I started at NYU in 1979 and as a professor, okay? And it started creeping up slowly and slowly that you had to basically walk the walk and talk the talk or, you're mar- or you will be marginalized. So just to give you some examples, um, when there was some issues with who you voted for which election, I once said at a faculty meeting, I voted for Nixon. That was the biggest joke. Everybody cracked up, okay? I didn't vote for Nixon, okay? But I'm just saying I said it. Then when Bush invaded Iraq, there was this huge missive to all the faculty. What do we do to express our indignation about this? So I spoke up and I said, how do you know that we're all indignant? Again, I was the big, I was the the cut up. Everybody laughed at it. It was the biggest joke around. And then insidiously, especially, like, for instance, I tried to start the um, program in Tel Aviv for over 20 years while NYU was branching out to Abu Dhabi, to Turkey, to Ghana. And they kept saying, no, 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 it's not safe. It's not safe. It's not safe. Finally, when Abu Dhabi expanded to several thousand students, all of whom were getting free tuition, the administration agreed for me to start the branch in Tel Aviv with 10 students or 12 students and to keep a lid on it. And the impression I got is that there's a way to do things that fit with the ideals, and there's a way that there isn't. So my final um, idea, my, my final experience that I had in Tel Aviv is we went, I taught, my wife and I basically taught a course there in cross-cultural psychology, and we centered a lot on the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I would invite um, people, that I, we had a big checkbook. Okay, so I was able to, to, to get the most prominent spokespeople around. I got people who were close to Hamas. I mean, it definitely were virulent anti-Israelis, and the administration had no problem with that. I once invited Yuli Edelstein to speak to us. Okay, this is when he had just, he was just a minister of Knesset. I got such crazy flack saying, how dare you invite somebody like this? Okay, and but that came in everywhere I um, picked up like fairly um, blatant um, uh, non-Jewish biases throughout from co-faculty, from the organized administration. And I just kept feeling this is not my place. I don't belong here. I never identified as an American. I always identified as a Jewish refugee. But I finally, I just got the message, I don't belong here. I just don't belong here at all. These are not my people. And I felt just as alienated, by the way, among the faculty at Tel Aviv University because they are honorary um, American um, liberals. Sure. I, I am not a gung-ho supporter of Trump at all. I am not a, uh, you know, a, a, I don't have a hat that says make America great or make America non-great. I don't do that. But I'm saying I recognize fascism when I see it. 
and I was appalled that these were people who ideally, at least as a teenager, I thought, I really want to identify, this is liberal, um, heaven, academia, they have no um, biases, they look at things straight, and really they ended up being not more bigoted, but just as bigoted as the radical McCarthyists. And it just got to me. And I said, I don't belong here. So I got whatever mileage I could by running the, the um, university branch here in Israel for some years. But eventually it got to the point that, I mean, Esther, my wife, was very disappointed with the students that after a while they came in so brainwashed that you couldn't talk to them. I mean, there's no such thing as, there's only a right way to look at things and the right way is whatever is being preached. And uh, I just found that insufferable. So, so basically, you, you were alienated by by what has happened in academia across the world. Whereas, instead of mm-hmm. academia being the place where science occurs, whether whether it's the science of the mind that you're involved in, or the science of bacteria, bacteriology, uh, or, or what what the world is working on now, what you saw again was this 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 infection of of of, of colleges, doctors. Uh, graduate school students, everyone somehow has to speak out on the political situation of the world as opposed to what you were interested in, which was the abstract truth. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's a that's sort of like a contradiction in terms, but yeah. I don't think it is. Let me, say, let me just say, I wasn't so much concerned that people were politicians or that my colleagues had political beliefs, which were not consistent with mine. That's fine. I was concerned that they're politicizing science that they feel that the science, like for instance, um, when I was chair of the, of the, I mean, of the whole, the whole establishment at NYU for a while, and they were coming up with, they, at some point it became popular to do mission statements because that seemed to be popular across the world. They said, okay, so what's our mission for psychology? And I said, the mission of psychology is to understand people and then to use those skills to change behavior or to help it. And they were pushing, no, the mission of psychology is social justice. And I was ready to puke. They said, the mission of psychology is not social justice. The mission of physics is not social justice. The mission of medicine is not social justice. It's a science. You can then use it however you want to. And of course, I believe in social justice, but I don't believe in social justice as a psychologist. And when I was in physics, which was my previous self, I did not feel that Physics mandates social justice. Physics mandates understanding weak forces, strong forces, and thermodynamics. So yes, I was very concerned that the science that I was so much a religion, religionist of was becoming an other field to be used for another purpose and defined that way. Again, again, it's, it's a little bit of an amateur historian. You know, that's one of my areas. I think part of it is really um, an outgrowth of World War II uh, and the Cold War that that came after it. In, in that period, what we had was this idea of the scientists somehow being in the thrall of these evil governments, right? The idea of the Nazi scientists and then the Russian mm-hmm. scientists. Science was very much intertwined with creating a bomb, <laughs> finding a chemical warfare. Sure. And so we had this idea of the evil scientist, the mad scientist, uh, and therefore, mm-hmm. there was sort of the corrective that needed to kick in that, you know, our scientists are not just going to be about, we're going to be about, uh, you know, we're going to be marching, we're going to be changing the world. Um, the idea of science in its pure form, I think, uh, suffered a tremendous blow. And I don't think we've recovered really 
from this idea of, you know, the Mengele specter, although uh, a recent book actually uh, came out that showed Mengele was not a, uh, was actually a mediocre scientist, despite his fame. But that idea that somehow pure science in itself leads to this, this evil, I think that's really, that, that specter is really, I think, still haunting us. Well, Dr. Journey, right, I think we... See, but the re- Tell me, say the real response to that is that pure science does not lead to values at all. Not to conclude that we have to distort pure science to make it lead to positive values, because that's as much, it's not as much as a travesty, but it's a distortion of what science is, and it's a fiction. The, uh, uh, you know what, I think we bit off a lot today. And if you're gonna, uh, if you're gonna agree to do this again, we'll try next time. Uh, as we stand in these two worlds, uh, and maybe we'll touch a little bit more on the Frumwelt, because I think that's that's an area that we both sort of grew up in, and I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective about what's happening there uh, and, and what your uh, analysis is of, of, of how it's going. So, my friends, look, that's about it for this week. Write us and tell us. Uh, Dr. Juni, thanks loads for giving me uh, your time today. It was definitely a lot to chew on. Um, and, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And we'll be back, hopefully, again, we'll try to come up next week with, a, with another episode of Standing in Two Worlds uh, with Dr. Sam Juni. Okay, be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 